Well, good morning, Mac. How's everybody doing today? It's always great to be able to stand before you. My name is Don. I'm a retired pastor, and uh, I have been invited to speak, so I appreciate very much that opportunity. I'm very grateful for it. Um, I'd like to begin with prayer, please. Holy Father, we thank you so much for the period of worship that we have at this time. And Father, I pray that uh, you would guide me in my heart, my thoughts, my my words. I pray, Father, that you'd help me to deliver this lesson in a way that's faithful to you and also effective. So let's say you uh, want to study about love. Where would you go in the New Testament? What chapter just jumps out at you as a love chapter? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. I think I heard it. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, good. Uh, let's say you want to study about um, faith, what faith is and what it looks like in God's people in the New Testament. Where would you turn? Yeah, Hebrews 11. Good. A lot of people are familiar with Hebrews 11. That's really good. All right. So I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. That's going to be page 1007 in your uh, pew Bibles there. 1007. Hebrews 11. As you just kind of... Uh, glance over the chapter or remember the chapter, there's a lot of names there that uh, you're probably familiar with, like uh, Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Sarah. But the question I'm wanting to ask now is, uh, when did those people live? I mean, was that Old Testament times or New Testament times? Old Testament, right? Old Testament. And maybe you've wondered, well, why, what are they doing here in the New Testament? You know? And here they're walking by faith and they're given as examples of what it means to walk by faith for us. And yet, have you ever thought of faith as being more of a New Testament concept, not Old Testament? Well, it is for both Testaments. God, God's people have always been justified on that basis, justified by faith. And what the chapter shows very clearly is uh, God has, has accepted his people as they walk by faith. So as we get into this though, um, and by the way, Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says, the righteous one shall live by faith. So that's a verse that's actually in the Old Testament. But it says that righteousness comes through a faith walk, uh, not through keeping the law, uh, not through the commandments, not through doing a bunch of good works. It comes by faith. All right. So that is a, a principle stated in the Old Testament, or, but applies also to the New Testament. Okay, so uh, how would you define faith? And I'm gonna start with, first of all, how unbelievers often think of faith. I'm gonna start with Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. <laughs> and of course, he's a humorist. Uh, so he's trying to get a chuckle from us on that. He's wrong, but uh, he is trying to get a chuckle. And then there's Richard Dawkins, who is a very famous evolutionary biologist. And uh, he says, faith means belief in the absence of evidence. Faith is belief in the absence of evidence. That is, you just either have faith or you don't, you know. Now, sometimes Christians think that too, but it's actually not true at all. As we turn into Hebrews chapter 11, the very first verse defines faith for us. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and is the evidence or conviction of things not seen. 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The word for assurance there in the Greek is foundation. Faith is the foundation of our hope. So if you have a strong faith, you have a strong hope. You have a weak faith, you have a weak hope, right? That's how that would work. So faith is the assurance or foundation of the things that we hope for, but it is also the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. It's believing certain things exist or people exist or God's existence without seeing him, but seeing evidence of him. I have been driving up Hillview for, well, nearly four years every Sunday morning to worship here at Mac. And, you know, there's a construction project just below us here. There's a bunch of apartment buildings going up. To this day, I have never seen anyone working there. I've never seen a builder. But I believe that the builder exists because I see his handiwork or their handiwork. So the, the apartments themselves, the handiwork, is the evidence of the builder. So we see the unseen through the evidence he leaves. Well, that's the way it is with faith, our faith in God in particular. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through things that were made, through what has been made. In other words, God is invisible, but we see God, in a sense, through what he has made, through his creation. Several years ago, I began studying a particular field of biology called epigenetics. Actually, it began to be kind of developed about 1990, so it's pretty recent. With epigenetics, I, I think God is written all over that field of science. It evidences God in a very strong way. With epigenetics, what we find out is our genome, our DNA, comes pre-equipped to adapt organisms to their changing environments. You know, we typically think that to adapt takes a random mutation being naturally selected. But in the case of epigenetics, the genes are there. They didn't evolve into existence. They're there already. They just need to be switched on or off. And that's what the epigenome does. I have examples of the, the fish. Uh, we have a stickleback fish, it's called. And this fish, when he's in ocean water, the epigenome switches on a gene that codes for, you see that spine, look at the upper fish there, the, that very, it's a very sticky, very protective spine. And then there's a coat of armor that he has. And that protects him from predators in the ocean. But then you take that same stickleback fish, you put him in fresh lake water, and over several generations, he'll drop it. He'll lose that armor. That is, the gene will be switched off by the epigenome. But you put that fish back in the ocean water, and after several generations, the epigenome will switch on, again, that gene to code for that. If you've read about the Italian wall lizard, same story. The Italian wall lizard put him on a, an island where his diet consists of tough leaves. A gene switches on so that he has massive jaws, jaw muscles, so he can eat that, those leaves. And, in fact, a gene switches on that codes for a sequel valve. It's like a second stomach. It's like a, a fermenting chamber to help him digest. Put him on the mainland where he mostly has insects for his diet. He loses that. The gene switches off. 
He just looks like a lizard then. Put him back on the island where the grass is or where the vegetation is, Gene switches back on. I mean, this is, this is God's providing beforehand. Darwin's finches, which are kind of the poster child of evolution, they're finding the same thing is true. You know, we've always been taught that the, the differences, the, the different species were produced by natural selection of random genetic mutations. What they're finding is that the g- genome is about the same from one finch to another. It's simply a matter of certain genes switching on or switching off. You have genes switching. If you have a, 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 a finch that's on an island that has mostly seeds and nuts, then a gene switches on that codes for a very thick beak. Put the finch on an island where it's mostly insects for its diet, a gene switches on that produces a long, skinny beak. That's all he needs. See, this is provision. God going ahead, providing genes that will enable organisms to adapt to their changing environments. Anyway, stay tuned with that. I'd encourage you to keep reading up on epigenetics. So, anyway, evidence there. Now, so... How important is faith? How important is faith? Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So I'd say it's essential. Listen, you can't please God. In fact, we'll see you can't be righteous without faith. Ephesians 2, 8 that we're more familiar with probably. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith, we reach out and take hold of the saving grace in the blood of Christ by faith. So it's, it's essential. It's very important. And then Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. So our whole lifestyle, and that is the idea of a walk. A walk is the way we typically behave. It, the way we characteristically think and behave is our walk. And he says, We don't just do things by faith here and there, but as a way of life, we walk by faith. So it is essential. So what is the basis of our faith, this faith that we walk by? What what guides us? What's our standard? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So the word of God, God tells us things and we believe on that basis. In fact, there used to be a bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Right? God says it, I believe it, and for me, that settles it. And that's the idea of basing faith upon the word of God. God is a faithful God. So his word is certain. God is a holy God. It's impossible for God to lie. So his word is trustworthy, therefore, when he tells us certain things are true, then we believe him. Now, what does this look like as far as a walk? In Hebrews 11, it's all about walking by faith. And we have many examples. So what does it look like when we look at these specific examples? Well, first of all, when God tells us something is true, our response of faith is that we believe it. We accept it as true. That's the belief response. Hebrews 11, verse 3 By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. All right, so in other words, the word of God tells us, and, you know, we weren't back there when it happened, but God who did it says, here's how it happened. God says that he, in his word, he created 
the universe. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, he says he did it in six days. And that kind of bothers us sometimes as Christians. How, how did God do it in six days? You see, what you need to understand is the Bible also says that he did it supernaturally. Not naturally. Supernaturally. And the problem is that the world doesn't accept the supernatural. The world does not accept the existence of God. So, yeah, they're going to come up with billions of years. But taking what God himself says in his word, he simply spoke the universe into existence. If you have a, a Bible, you want to turn to Psalm 33 and verse 9. Psalm 33 verse 9 says it very succinctly. It says, for he spoke and it was done. God spoke, let there be, and it was so. And the idea is he spoke and it was done. Not he spoke and it was done over millions and millions of years. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, he goes on to say, he commanded, God commanded, and the universe stood forth. God summoned, like a servant, he summoned the universe into existence, and it stands at his bidding to do his will, and it has. So the point here is that God tells us what he did, how he did it, and then when we walk by faith, we say, I believe, I believe. Well, God also tells us that that spiritual world that we hear about in the Word is true. God's Word tells us that angels are real. God's Word tells us that the devil is real. God's Word tells us that heaven is real and that hell is real. And once again, I know there's some Christians that struggle with the idea of hell. But it's a matter of, or do we walk by faith or not? If we walk by faith, God tells us something is real and true, and so we accept it. We say, I believe. Secondly, when God makes a promise to us, we trust him. Even when we don't understand how he's going to do it. When God makes a promise, the response of faith is trust. I trust in what you say you're going to do. Abraham and Sarah, there's a lot said about them in Hebrews 11. They were old when God first called them. He was 75, she was 66. And God promised three very special promises. He said that in your seed, you and Abraham, you and Sarah are going to give birth to a, a son. His name's going to be called Isaac. And through that son, there's going to descend a great nation. That would be the nation of Israel. And then later on, that nation's going to receive the land of Canaan. And then later on, hundreds of years later, there's going to be a world savior to descend from him. That is in his seed, that is in this descendant, Jesus, all nations will be blessed. Okay, well, that's, that's really cool. The problem is that Abraham and Sarah are old. In fact, Sarah's barren. She's never been able to get pregnant. And then time goes on. 24 years transpire. Nothing's happened. He's 99. She is 90. And they're, through that period of time, they're just struggling. And they're saying, how? well, they even feel like they've got to help God out. You know, they bring Hagar in. And then things really get messy there. You know, anytime we try to help God, it doesn't really help him, does it? So, time goes by, but the point I'm making here is that their trust remains intact. Even when we don't understand God's promises or understand exactly how he's going to fulfill them, a faith response is that we trust. Our trust remains intact. 
Well, again, God in Christ, that is, as we come into a saved relationship in Christ, God promises to forgive us of our sins. Now, we may think that we've done something that's so awful that there's no way God could ever forgive it. But we trust his promise. He does forgive us through the blood of Christ. He promises to give us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to to sanctify us, to transform us. And we say, well, I don't understand how he does that. But you see, he promised that. And so we trust even when we have questions. He promises to hear and answer our prayers. And we say, well, I think there's some prayers he just never answered. Well, whether we work that out or not, the point is if we walk by faith, we trust God. And just simply put it up on the wall or something and say, I'll get back to that later. But right now, I'm really struggling with it. God says he causes all things to work together for good for us. And we might say, well, it doesn't look like things are working good for me. But that's okay. You can think that. But commit to God and trust. And that's what we find here. So to walk by faith is to believe what God tells us is real. And then it's also to trust in his promises. And then thirdly, to walk by faith means that when God tells us to do something, we do it, right? When God commands us to do something, we obey. We obey his command. Without doubting, without complaining, we simply obey. That's what it means to walk by faith. Now, in Hebrews 11, verse 8, back to Abraham, he's an example for us. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. So God said, Abraham, leave your homeland and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And that's Canaan. And it's going up the Fertile Crescent uh, in the map that we have. Uh, they lived in Ur of the Chaldees. And then it's 1,500 miles from there going up the Fertile Crescent and down to Canaan. Never been there before, didn't know what to expect, but they simply went. They obeyed. That is the response of faith. When we're walking by faith, God tells us to do something and we simply do it. Noah had done the same thing. God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world with the flood. Go build an ark for me. Build out a gopher wood. Here are the dimensions I want you to use. And what did Noah, what was his response? He did it. He went forth, did exactly what God told him to do. He obeyed. And he did that, Hebrews 11, verse 7, he did it by faith. That was part of his faith walk. I'm sure it, it wasn't the only way that he showed his faith, but that was what was called for when God gave him a command. So the response to a command is to obey. Now, God has not told us and commanded us to build an ark, has he? No, now I know there's some Christians who've actually done that, but he didn't, tell, he didn't tell us to go to Canaan either, like he did Abraham. But he has told us, as we come to Jesus in faith, that we're to repent. That's a command. So our response to the command is, we obey, we repent. He's also commanded us to be baptized, just as several were several weeks ago, to be baptized into Christ. What's our response? Well, we obey. We do what he tells us to do. He tells us to forgive those who have wronged us, even when they've really hurt us. So what's our response to the command to forgive others? Our response of faith is to obey. We do just what he tells us to do. So to kind of sum up, a faith walk looks like this. When God tells us something is true, we believe it. When God promises us something, we trust in the promise. And when God tells us to do something, we do what he tells us to do. 
Now we do that with the power of the Spirit. This isn't all on our own. The Holy Spirit helps us in all of this. But nonetheless, this is our response. Now, when we respond in faith in this way, what's really exciting to me about all this is that God's grace and power is activated within us in ways that are just unimaginable in some cases. The certainty of God's word. We see that people responded as they respond in faith, they were able to see what was actually unseeable. And we're going to get back to Abraham in that. When God tells us something is real, we can see it as real. And when God promises us that something's going to happen, he'll do something, we know it's certain it's going to happen. In fact, this is something that's really fascinating to me, and that is that when God promises something for the future, it's as good as done. Let me show you an example of that. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 says, uh, this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. It says, he was pierced through for our iniquities. He was pierced through. He was put on the cross for our sins. Now, what tense is that? He was pierced. Present, past, future. Past, right? Past. And yet in reality, this is a prophecy of something that would happen 740 years later. But he speaks of it in the past tense. And the point is that the fulfillment of Christ's death in our behalf was so certain that it's like it was a done deal. When he prophesied it, it was like it was a done deal. It's like it already happened. Again, to show this uncertainty of it. So in other words, this is how we're able to see as real things that are still in the future. And that's what we see here in chapter 11 Chapter 11 and uh, verse 13, all these, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them, having welcomed them from a distance. So those three promises, they were able to see them fulfilled, though they're hundreds of years in the future. The promise for a great nation to come, they saw through eyes of faith, they saw as very real that great nation They saw as very real that nation receiving the land of Canaan. And they saw as very real the coming Christ. It was like it had already happened. That's how powerful God's grace and his power is within us. Enabling us to see as real things that are actually still future to us. Hebrews 11 verse 10. This is Abraham described as being on a pilgrimage says, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. When you read through the context, it's talking about heaven. He's looking for the heavenly city. He's on a pilgrimage to the heavenly city. Well, you know, when you go on a pilgrimage, you're not going to an imaginary place. People who do a pilgrimage to Mecca, Mecca exists. People who go to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, Jerusalem's real. Well, we are all, along with Abraham, on a pilgrimage to the heavenly city. And it's real. That city is just as real to us as Missoula is. That is the power that is working within us as we submit to God in faith, walk by faith. His power enables us to realize what hasn't yet even happened. It becomes real to us. Secondly, as we walk by faith, we are able, that is, we are empowered to do the undoable. We are empowered 
to do the undoable. Go back to Abraham and Sarah. There was no natural way that Abraham and Sarah could have had a child. That promise for them to have a son, there is no natural way that could have happened. Because here's Abraham, 99 years old. She's 90. And she's been barren anyway. She's never been able to get pregnant. And yet, uh, Romans 4.18, I've really enjoyed and appreciate the way Paul puts this. When we get to Abraham, it says, in hope against hope, he believed. That simply means he hoped when there was no hope. When there was no hope physically, he still hoped. Who did he hope in, though? Not himself. He hoped in God. He trusted God. In hope against hope, he believed. And therefore, God enabled him to have a son. Hebrews chapter 11, specifically referring to uh, Sarah, Hebrews 11, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life. Since she considered him faithful who had promised, and therefore also there was born of one man in him as good as dead. At that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number. Can you imagine Abraham and Sarah walking down the road and some friends uh, come up the road that Sarah knows and she wants to introduce them to her husband, Abraham. She says, uh, oh, I want you to meet uh, my husband, Abraham. He's an old guy. In fact, he's he's as good as dead. He's just as good as dead. (laughs) I don't know how I'd appreciate that. But anyway, the writer here says that when he finally had the son, Actually, his body was just as good as dead. There was no way. The point is there was absolutely no way that he, his body, could naturally have done it. But as he submitted to God in faith and trust, God's power was activated in him and in Sarah so that they could have the son. And that's the wonderful thing about walking by faith. It draws upon divine power. It draws upon power we don't have. It draws upon ability we do not have inherent in ourselves. In chapter 11, verse 29, I'm just going to hit a couple of verses here. We see that same thing. Moses, as he parts the Red Sea, God tells him to take his staff, stretch his hand out over the sea and divide it. Now, I want to assure you that if Moses had just kind of on his own, walked out there, grabbed a stick, and stood out and reached out over the sea, I can almost promise you it would have done nothing. Nothing would have happened. The power was not in Moses. It was not in the stick either. The power was that God told him to do it. And in his obedience, that is in his faith, God then empowered him to part that sea. Same thing with Joshua, chapter 11, verse 30. Joshua and Israel surrounded the city of Jericho. By God's command. God told him how many times to surround it, over how many days. Then he said, then I want you to, to blow the trumpets and shout. And then the walls will come down. And, of course, they did. But again, if Joshua had just on his own said, I'd say, well, let, let's, let's try this strategy. I just, I just kind of thought this up. Let, let's go and let's, let's go walk around that city a few times. And, oh, grab your trumpet and... and uh, and, and you know what? On that seventh day, let's, let's just really shout and blow the trumpet and, and uh, let's just see if the walls fall down. I could just assure you it wouldn't have happened because that would have been his power. 
But when God told him to do it, and he did it in obedience, that is, he did it by faith, then God's power was activated through him so that the walls fell down. Not by their power, but by faith drawing upon God's power. That's what walking by faith is all about. So, accordingly, walking by faith, we are empowered to do some things that maybe have been impossible to us or, or would otherwise be impossible. Uh, let's say you've been overcome by some kind of addiction and you've tried and tried and tried on your own, you can't ditch it. But by faith in God, you're calling upon divine power to work through you to break that, that addiction. And through the Holy Spirit power, you, you do it. You do it. Because it's not your power. Now it's God's. Or God tells you to forgive someone who's really hurt you. And you've, you, you've known that you should forgive, but you just can't do it. But you walk by faith, and you're trusting in God to empower you in that obedience. Maybe before you became a Christian, maybe you were really an ornery guy. Maybe you were a jerk. Maybe you were self-centered. Maybe you were miserable and you made everyone around you miserable. But then you come to Christ, you walk by faith, and the Holy Spirit enables you. He helps you to be transformed into a caring, considerate person. A person who not only is filled with joy, but one who brings joy to, every way, to everyone around them. Walking by faith is actually, as we, submit, as we submit to God's authority, we're also submitting to his power in our life. And then thirdly, we're able to become the impossible. We are able to become the impossible when we walk by faith. When you look at that list in Hebrews 11, what might strike you is that these were not perfect people. We sometimes call them heroes of faith, but they were by far not perfect people. They were not sinless. Noah, and you know, we've, got the, we've got the goods on them because we've got the Old Testament, right? We know that Noah on one occasion got drunk. We know that Abraham on one occasion lied to save his own skin. We know that Jacob on one occasion deceived his elderly blind father. We know that Moses on one occasion disobeyed God and didn't treat him as holy. We know that Samson, at least to begin with, was a lustful narcissist. We know that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. These were not perfect people. They became righteous, but it was not by their own power. It was not because they turned around and did a bunch of commands. It's not because they did a bunch of good works. They had to trust in God's power to make them righteous. God had to make them righteous, and he does so. And did so by faith, as he does with us. Hebrews 11, verse 4, Abel, Old Testament. By faith, Abel obtained the testimony, and we know it's from God. By faith, Abel obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testified that he was righteous as he walked by faith. Again, by walking by faith, he's drawing upon the forgiving grace of God. Hebrews 11, 8, Noah, by faith Noah, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So in his faith walk, as God told Noah to do something, to build the ark, he responded in obedience 
And then God declared him righteous. And I don't think that was just the first time he's declared righteous. If this is a faith walk, as we walk by faith, God forgives our sins and we are righteous. And so as we walk by faith, we are looking to God. We are saying, I'm insufficient in myself. I need you, God, to forgive me. I need you to make me righteous. I need you to empower me to become what you want me to become. I need you to instill with me a hope that otherwise I never could have. Worship team, please come forward, please. Worship team. Many years ago, I, I was shopping at a used car lot here in Missoula, and I uh, found a car that really seemed perfect for my purposes. And so I went to the, to the office to get a key to test drive it. And when I went to the office and I asked for the key, the salesman did something I was not expecting. He took the key. Instead of handing it to me, he palmed it. He just kept it. He said, hey, let's, uh, let's go for a drive. So he walked over to the car. He got in the driver's seat. I got in the passenger seat. And, and we turned on to, to Brooks. And as soon as we got onto Brooks, now this is many years ago, not as much traffic. As we got onto Brooks, then all of a sudden he just stomped the accelerator. He floored it. And I remember the engine roaring and it threw me back in my seat and I'm just looking at him like, what are we doing? I know we hit 50 before he finally let off. And then he dropped back to speed a little bit, went back to the lot and parked the car and he gave me the key and he said, never buy a car until you have first driven it hard. Never buy a car until you've first driven it hard, until you've first stressed it, put it under pressure to see what it's like to see what it's made of. And I'm thinking, that's this, too. Hebrews 11, we might ask our que the question, has this faith walk ever been tested? How, how strong is it, really? How real is it? I mean, when it's really under pressure, when there's extreme circumstances, when there's persecution, how does this faith walk work? Is it for real? Does it sustain anybody? And, and you see, the answer to that is yes. Look at the last few verses. We're going to start with uh, verse 35 of Hebrews 11. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release. See, if they gave up their faith, they would, they would be released. But their faith was strong enough. So they said, bring it on. Uh, we'll be resurrected. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment, verse 37. They were stoned, and by the way, Jeremiah was stoned. They were sawn in two, according to Jewish tradition, Isaiah the prophet was placed inside a hollow tree and sawn in two. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, but men of whom the world was not worthy world didn't deserve them. They treated them like dirt, but the world in reality did not deserve them. Wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, and holes in the ground. Rejected by the world, but their faith stood fast. In fact, it goes on to say that they gained the approval of God by their faith walk. Interesting thing is back in verse 2, it says the same thing. They gained approval from God, these people. And with us too. So that kind of bookends the whole chapter, doesn't it? Rejected by the world, but approved by God. 
And what's uh, interesting is when we get into chapter 12, it says that these heroes of faith now are our cloud of witnesses. They, they surround us, and by their example, these heroes of faith are now saying to us, you can do it. By the power of God, you can do it. Maintain your walk of faith. They're cheering us on. They're prodding us. They're saying, whatever's holding you back, drop it. If there's some sin you're hanging on to, drop it. Turn away from it. If there's some distraction in your life, drop it. Do away with it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Run with his endurance. Finish strong. Finish strong. Holy Father, we, we come to you this morning, Father. We confess our inability. We confess our insufficiency in ourselves. We confess that, Father, we need you, and therefore our eyes are on you. As we walk by faith, Father, we pray that you'd continue to, to lavish your grace upon us, your sanctifying grace, your empowering grace, so that we might, with them, we might finish strong. But, oh Jesus, our, our eyes are fixed on you. Our eyes are fixed on you.